Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today is my great pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Jamie Stanley. Jamie is the Senior Sport Physiologist, Human Performance and Recovery Optimization Specialist and he works at the South Australian Institute of Sport and also with Cycling Australia and Swimming Australia. So welcome to the podcast, Jamie. Thanks, Liz. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm really pleased to have you with us. I know you've got so many areas of expertise and, and I want to draw on just a couple of those, but we could have multiple conversations if we wanted to, um, <laughs> which I might pin you down for at another time. But first, can you start us off with telling us a bit about your background and how you got into working with paracycling? Yeah, so I guess I I got into high performance sport, I guess, late high school. I was an aspiring triathlete at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and going to uni, I was I, I decided I, I wanted to, to choose a university that would really benefit my triathlon endeavours rather than my uh, education. And I ended <laughs> up in Queensland, <laughs> the mecca for triathlon at the time. Mm-hmm. And it was just through, I guess, uh, serendipity. You go through different training groups and you talk to people and you sort of network and one conversation I had with a coach at the athletics track was around, you know, what am I going to do after I've done my my undergrad science degree? Mm-hmm. And uh, he mentioned that the Queensland Academy of Sport offered scholarships to um, to do postgraduate research. And I thought, oh, that's mm-hmm. a good opportunity. So I um, found the email, sent an email off and had an interview. And yeah, I got a, my start was doing an honours project at, at the QAS looking at thermoregulation and ice slushies. Mm-hmm. And and um, so then from there, did you go straight into your PhD work, or or did you take a break and come back to that? Good question. No, I after my honours, the QIS were were happy with what I achieved, and they said we'll give you a PhD scholarship. You can pick whatever you want to do it in. We'll back you. Wow. And uh, so really, really fortunate to be in that position. So I thought, mm. great, I've got another three or four years. I can I can get paid to be a student and continue my triathlon endeavours <laughs> and don't have to get a real job. But I guess that PhD process really set me up. It was, it was I guess, focused on, on recovery, but it, it covered a couple of elements of, of the recovery process. And as we're probably going to talk about a little later, not just recovery, but it, it taught me around adaptation rather than mm-hmm. recovery per se and so my PhD comprised of using heart rate variability as a tool to assess recovery kinetics mm-hmm. uh, and we modulated the recovery kinetics using hydrotherapy interventions so cold water hot water contrast therapy which was quite topical at the time mm. Okay. And then from there, did you stay at the QAS for a while or did you actually get a job at at SASE reasonably quickly? Um, no, so it was about a year, I guess, from the time I finished my, my PhD. Uh, QAS mm-hmm. were, were quite accommodating in, in allowing me to, I guess, act as a, a research scientist part-time so I could continue doing triathlon <laughs> and, and I guess become a little bit more embedded in in the triathlon program at QAS for that mm-hmm. period but after that I was actively seeking opportunities all over the place I wasn't tied to Queensland and yeah after after five or six job interviews I ended up down in South Australia right. uh, at SASE. Yep 
And so was your primary program at the time cycling? Because that's where the track cycling in Australia is based in Adelaide, in South Australia. So was that kind of the primary program you started off with? Uh, it, one of, it was one of the draw cards, I guess, mm-hmm. having the national program based in Adelaide. You know, in the back of my mind, it's like there's opportunity there being being so close to a national program. But initially, uh, I was working with four sports. So I had the swimming program, the sassy cycling program, water polo and field hockey. Mm. Uh, so I had quite a, a diverse range of athletes and coaches to work with, which was which was really good. Like I, I coming from a triathlon background, I sort of knew a bit about swimming, knew about cycling and running, but team sports were pretty foreign to me. Mm. And yeah, a new new city, new people. I I didn't know anyone in Adelaide. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so then how did you move into working with the paracycling program? Yeah, so after the 2016 Rio Olympics, we'd had quite a successful games, particularly with a, a certain uh, swimmer based in South Australia winning the 100 metres freestyle. Mm-hmm. And in my work with the, the SASI cycling program, it had allowed me to be exposed to the national program. And I guess Tim Decker, who was who is still the, uh, the men's track endurance coach, uh, mm-hmm. he recruited me to work with the men's track endurance program in 2017 for the Tokyo cycle. Uh, and as we know, that cycle was prolonged with with COVID, mm. and and during that 2020 year there was there was quite a lot of restructuring and and repositioning as a result of that, and and part of that was me starting work with the the Australian paracycling team uh, mm. with the with the goal of of really honing in their heat preparation given the the expected conditions in Tokyo and and knowing that. Paracyclists, in particular, uh, can face substantial challenges due to various impairments in the heat. Yeah. Okay. And so, how did you find working with para athletes compared to the able-bodied side of things? Were there a lot of things that you had to learn about in that, you know, in the initial phase? Oh, definitely. Yeah. There's 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 so many things to learn, and and it's not just power, but any any time you're working with new and new athletes, new coaches, new staff, like you're learning every day. Mm. But I guess in the para specific space, it was one getting up to speed with all the different classification classes. So in cycling, mm. there's there's quite a few. There's there's athletes that ride on tandems. There's hand cyclists. There's athletes that ride on on normal bikes. But there's various classifications within that so one it was trying to understand what all of that meant mm. and then two within each of the classifications an athlete may have various ranges of impairment and they may range from being an amputee um, having an acquired brain injury having multiple sclerosis or cerebral palsy you know you can have athletes with different impairments in the same classification so mm. yeah it's, it's a very individualized scene okay so tell us about the work that you do and you said that you work with different athletes and also the coaches. So can you give us a little bit of an idea of the scope of the work you do in terms of optimising training in particular? Yeah, it's it's quite broad and varied and, again, it's a little bit it's, – it's tailored to what the coach needs from me, uh, where their strengths and weaknesses lie and in also, you know, the, the specific requirements – of the athletes that they're they're preparing, 
Mm. And so I guess there's there's a couple of elements. There's the well, first of all, I guess I'm a sounding board to the coach. I'm not the coach, but I've got some um, specialist knowledge, expertise in various areas that can enhance coaching practice. And so I guess it's it's through that conversation, uh, listening to the coach, providing some feedback and suggestions, having the same conversations with the athletes as well, mm-hmm. that you you begin to distill down what what some of the key elements might be, and that's and that's where I sort of choose different focus areas depending on the athlete. So so leading into Tokyo, that's probably quite a clear cut example. Heat was the was the major identified as as a as a potential performance performance limiter. Mm-hmm. And so my job uh, at the time was to try and understand each of the athletes individual responses to heat stress mm-hmm. and and formulate strategies to mitigate performance loss and um, maintain maintain athlete health. Mm. Okay, and we've we've actually had a podcast previously about you know heat and management of heat. So we're not going to focus on that one as specifically in this podcast. But I guess we'll go back to one of the components of your title, <laughs> which is <Yeah. laughs> recovery optimization. So can you tell us what that really means and, and how you see recovery optimization being? Yeah, sure. Performance and recovery optimization, I guess it's it's sort of a, a combined idea and it's it's more around looking like a, a more holistic mindset when you're looking at athletes and how they're responding. Mm-hmm. And so Often in sport, we think about the only stress on the athlete being the training. Mm. And we all know that that's not the case. Power athletes in particular tend to be a bit further along in their their life journey. They've got other stuff going on in their life that might be work or study, family, as well as dealing with the challenges of their impairments. So, you know, there's a lot of stresses that that impact how they're going to respond to to training. Mm. And so... I guess the idea around optimizing the performance and recovery component is is around trying to provide the right dose of training at the right time, given the level of stress the athlete can handle at any given time. Mm-hmm. And so how do you measure that stress? Yeah, it's a very, very good question. I think um, so my PhD, a big part of my PhD was the use of heart rate variability. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 10, 12 years ago at the time, it was a very manual process. So we had the the old polar or Swinto heart rate monitors. You had chest straps. You had to, you know, it was quite a laborious process to get basic mm-hmm. information. Whereas, you know, now we've got wearables that you can buy off the shelf. A lot of them have got good validity uh, compared with a gold standard measure. So you can be confident that the the heart rate variability measures that they're collecting which is, I guess, a, uh, an indication of, of cardiac autonomic nervous system activity. And also, for me, this is the game changer, the, the quantification of sleep. Um, mm-hmm. Having those two hand in hand means that you've got a good indication of how the athlete is recovering, but also how they're responding uh, to the stress imposed on them. And there's various platforms out there which by which you can characterize the the training stress so you've effectively got the three key inputs into progressing an athlete along the performance journey 
And so I guess, you know, the whole reason why athletes train and why we want stress in the system is that that's what makes the athlete adapt to being a fitter, faster, stronger athlete over time. But obviously too much stress without it being well managed can put a put an athlete into a hole um, or into you know performance decrement and not enough stress might actually lead to underperformance. So there's no it's it's a fine art and it obviously depends on the sport. But how do you know how far to push an athlete? That's the million dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> I guess <laughs> Give us the I answer guess, now, I, Jamie. Give us the answer now. <laughs> I guess if we if we take it back one step and you think about like it's it's a really common catch cry around consistency is key. Mm-hmm. And if you think about training consistently and accumulating appropriate stresses over time, then you've got long-term sustainable performance improvement. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I, the tools that I use are, as, as I said, they're, they're around trying to more objectively quantify the athlete's recovery state, response to training or stress state in the context of the training they're doing mm-hmm. and trying to understand deviations from what is normal for them. Mm-hmm. And so rather than, you know, a, a particular, say, say we go with sleep, say, Instead of looking at sleep as, okay, if you're getting more than eight hours, that's good. If you're getting less than six hours, that's bad. It's around trying to understand and refer to a good or a bad value with respect to what is normal for the athlete. So Mm -hmm. in power in particular, depending on the impairment, we've got athletes that a good night's sleep for them is like four hours. Like, yep. and you compare that to someone else. Like, it's how do how do you even how do you survive on that? Let alone train <laughs> to be a Paralympian. Yeah. And so I think for me, when you start to to uh, look at those particular data streams in that way, it becomes a lot more powerful and a lot more individualized to the athlete. Mm. And so you know, if you're looking at sleep duration, when an athlete starts to sleep uh, less than normal then you might ask the question, okay, what is causing that? And Mm -hmm. so it could be that, one, they're not giving themselves the opportunity to sleep because they're out partying or they've got exams and they're studying, or two, it might be that the training stress is at a level where they're they're overstimulated and they're struggling to sleep. Mm -hmm. And so you can have two different interpretations from the same data, and I guess having this information to contextualise what's going on and, and to prompt the conversation Yep. is where the gold is and that's and that's how you you attempt to optimize the dose um, yep. versus response and as you say that that dose may need to change from one part of the training phase to another or even from one year to another depending on the other stressors that may be around so one athlete may cope really well with that same training load one year and not so well another year because there might be other things going on in their life for example exactly exactly right and then mm. that's where like trying to frame the the data that's presented relative to what's normal for that athlete and what's normal for the athlete will change over time and it will fluctuate it's really fascinating when you zoom out and you look at 12 months of this kind of data and you see cyclical patterns mm. and it's like, oh, they relate to seasons and, and whatever. 
it really does open your eyes into, you know, being able to, to zoom in and zoom out to try and, you know, better tailor the training and the, and the stress dose for, for each athlete. And do you notice any specific differences between para-athletes outside of the sleep, obviously, but are there certain impairment types that perhaps don't respond as well to the same stress or the same training load as perhaps another you know, type of impairment? Oh, most most definitely, and that's and that's where the the the, the real diversity comes. Even in in the small Australian paracycling team we've got, mm-hmm. you might have have an athlete who who can who can cope with you know fifteen hours of, of training a week, whereas you've got another athlete that five hours a week is their equivalent, mm-hmm. and you know, and in some cases they may have the same impairment, but you know. I guess that particular example, they those athletes don't. But I guess it's it's a real eye opener to because in the end you're, you're trying to it's optimizing the dose, but you're also you are trying to push the athlete to to find the edge as well. Mm. And you know, being able to to just comprehend that that five or six hours is is an athlete's limit is is really mind-blowing when you when you consider that some able-bodied athletes might be doing 30 35 hour training weeks Mm. and is that something that you've found is a really important conversation to have with some of the para coaches or do you feel as though the para coaches already understand that pretty well uh it's that we've definitely had some some good conversations around it i guess most of the coaches are are able-bodied yeah don't don't have an impairment and so and a lot of them are former athletes. And so if you're a former road endurance athlete and you're used to doing 30 hours a week, mm. it, it, it's very hard to disassociate doing anything less than that as being, you know, good training. Yeah. So, again, it's, it's about recalibrating, you know, the expectation for each athlete. But I guess we're, we're all learning every day because none of us have the impairment that any particular athlete has. And so only they know how they they feel and how they're going to respond and and having that open dialogue is is really important i guess it reinforced the fact that you know if you really truly believe in individualization of training no matter who the athlete is like this is what it's about yep and so can we focus a little bit more on the recovery aspect and i i know you want to have a conversation about what you think that means but you know if you know some athletes like oh i've had my ice bath i've done my recovery or from a nutrition perspective oh i had my banana and i had my protein drink so my recovery is done is that the right framework or do you feel as though that's limiting their potential to really enhance performance uh i think it's it's a limitation because it's sort of it puts a cap on on what recovery is it's sort of it boxes it up into you know really discrete things it's like okay recovery for me is is doing doing a a 10 minute cold water immersion or recovery for for someone else is having their protein shake like yes they're all things that are going to influence how you recover and how you adapt but recovery is is an ongoing transient process and there's so many elements that influence that process and ultimately the thing that we're most interested in is is how you adapt to the stress imposed that you're recovering from mm-hmm. so i think yeah perhaps there needs to be a little mind a bit of a mindset shift 
in this, I guess, what recovery stands for. Because I know, you know, coming through uni and, and reading all the papers, like I was, I'm really interested in, in nutrition and selfishly as a triathlete, nutrition is really important. <laughs> yep. So I was, you know, looking for any, any advantage over, over my competition. And, you know, nutrition is a, is a good example where there's so many different elements to, to what you, you eat before and after and during training uh, that can influence your recovery from the training and how you adapt. And, and also, you know, ice baths, cold water baths, compression boots, all of those things, they, they, yeah, they, they, for sure they influence the recovery process at various levels in the body, be it cellular or neuromuscular or what have you. But I think you need to start thinking less so about you know, I just need to recover versus I need to optimise my adaptation. Mm. Mm. And so taking that lens, the optimization of your adaptation, what are some of the conversations that you've had with athletes and coaches around that? Uh, I guess the, the, the simplest one, which is applicable to everyone, is around trying to understand what their, their sleep routine is. Mm-hmm. Like it seems like a no-brainer, but... Even at an elite level, it's 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 sort of eye opening, you know, the sleep routines and the habits of of athletes, and mm. you know, when when sport is is held so high in terms of their aspiration and what they want to achieve, like the sleep is should be something that that is relatively straightforward to control uh, when you're at home, yeah. and so yeah, there's there's the sleep is the number is the biggest one. I think nutrition, and I when I say nutrition, I mean I guess more broadly, real foods and and understanding what macronutrients you need to to absorb that are going to to benefit you during the recovery and adaptive process, mm-hmm. and that's going to be different based on the kind of exercise stimulus that you've just undertaken. Yep. And I guess being more in, being in tune and aware of your of your body's signals, and that's where the heart rate variability side comes in, because I think it it gives you an insight into into your soul um, <laughs> which you know some people will sort of say oh you know it's 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 just a self-fulfilling prophecy it will flag up uh that you're good and you feel horrible or or you it, it will, or you or vice versa but it really what it comes down to is is forcing you to become more in tune with your body signals mm. yeah and, and i think that's a really important thing because i think a lot of athletes aren't particularly in tune with their body signals so if you look at athletes who recurrently get injured or get sick you know seemingly at the drop of a hat if you actually look at the processes and the monitoring that they go through sometimes they're not doing any monitoring at all and you know I think they're not in tune with it or you know maybe they're listening to their or they understand some things but they're not actually then understanding what to do about it so they go and train when they're sick for example which then for sure you know prolongs that sickness as well as you know inhibits the actual training itself so I think you know any form of monitoring doesn't even have to be heart rate variability it's just being aware of you know are my muscles sore how tired am I what's my mood like like there's so many things that an athlete can monitor but really what we're saying is how ready are you for the next training session and what can we do to make sure that you're ready to take on that ex- that next load? 
Exactly, exactly. And, and the fact that you're monitoring and recording, this is, I guess, the hidden value mm-hmm. um, because ultimately, like, first of all, you want to influence day-to-day decision-making, but by recording and having a history, you can reflect back on the context mm-hmm. of a preparation and that's where, you know, there's added value in, in following this sort of a process is you can begin to tease out when was the breaking point, could we have pushed harder, you yeah. know, why did I get sick? And there's, there's no magic bullet and, and, you know, predictive science with this at this point in time, but it, it definitely gives you the opportunity to, to reflect and, and have a conversation. Mm. Yeah, and should I be tired at this time? Like is the training that I'm doing something that I should feel tired or, or more tired or that I feel more hungry or less hungry or, you know, there's lots of things that, that you can track that give you indicators as to how well you what your body's doing in response to the load and also I guess the other thing I wanted to ask about so you know here in this context we're talking about optimizing training does there need to be a bit of a shift if we're talking about optimizing performance and if you take paracycling for example and particularly the track cyclists who often also do road cycling they have multiple you know particularly at a major games like in a, a Paralympics they have five races potentially in the space of a week. And so in that instance, we're not talking about a training adaptation. We're talking about actually optimising the ability to perform in each of, in each and every one of those events, correct? Exactly, exactly. And that's, and that's a really good point. Like how you modulate your recovery is, is really dependent on the phase of training you're in or whether you're in competition. So one example might be cold water immersion. During competition, 100%, I think it's, it's, it's very worthwhile because there's clear benefits for recovery of your nervous system and you feel good and the placebo and, and potentially the benefits of, of subsequent sleep and what have you. But if you're doing that day in, day out during you know, the main training phase, you're probably going to be blunting some of the, the cellular responses in your muscle. And so mm. you're potentially reducing the adaptations you're getting from training. Yep, yep. I think about some athletes who, who, for example, might go, oh, I've got to have some coffee to get myself through a training session. Uh, so there's also ways that athletes can mask how their body's actually feeling and potentially get themselves into a position where they might push harder than they need should have and was physically ready to in that training phase too is that right that's right and and it goes both ways you can you can use these ergogenic aids at at particular points to do that Mm -hmm. exact thing Mm -hmm. Um, but there's also times when that's not appropriate and and again it comes back to to monitoring and having clear plans so if you've got a clear plan that you want to stress the system and you're going to utilize ergogenic aids to you know, prolong how long an athlete can can take on stress and you're monitoring at the same time, at least you've got a bit more of a, a feedback loop to try and understand the the influence of, of that intervention. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And so how much do you think your approach has changed by having worked with para, different para-athletes? Do you feel as though it's created a shift in the way you work? Uh, most definitely. I think it's just highlighted that, you know, you have to think of an individual holistically and 
para athletes force you to do that because they're so individual in how they respond and if you think about it like everyone's an individual so we should really be thinking that way uh, with every athlete I guess with the para athlete if you don't think about them as an individual and consider their impairments there's there's real health consequences to that whereas with a with an able-bodied athlete they're probably more robust and and the consequence might not jeopardize their health Absolutely. So, Jamie, can you tell us if what recommendations you'd have for athletes, say, for example, athletes who are coming into para sport relatively new, who haven't had a lot of experience in this, or even seasoned athletes who just haven't had a lot of exposure to someone of, you know, in, in your area, what recommendations do you have for them? I guess the first one is, is trying to just be more in tune or, or aware of of their body and the context that they're in. So, you know, if they've if they're new to a sport and they've they've got a coach, and you know, most in most cases the coach may be uh, not in the same location as them, but you know, they they're the ones who've got control of of understanding how they feel and respond. So, like you mentioned before, just simple monitoring of of, of various metrics like sleep. Again, it's there's there's always an argument against monitoring because you can you can get a bit paralyzed with the analysis. But mm. I think, you know, something as simple as sleep and just even if it's just subjectively, okay, I think I slept seven and a half hours tonight and, you mm. know, whether you're off, you're gonna be consistently off, I would I would imagine. Then at least that gives you something to reflect back on to provide some context. And so, you know, as you said, like basic subjective wellness scores, like they're not hard, they're not a hard thing to to capture. And yeah. so, you know, starting out, yeah, like I think sleep, general fatigue or soreness, they're they're good they're a good place to start. Mm. Yeah. And I, I I do know that, you know, these new wearable devices, there's there seems to be people who it the device seems to run everything like in terms of you know oh I didn't have eight hours sleep so now I'm stressed about the fact that I didn't have eight hours sleep it's a bit like when you do a food diary if people get too too hung up on numbers and and hitting a set target that can also be an additional stress that's unnecessary correct oh for sure for sure and I think that is that is probably the big risk when you when you're looking at commercial uh, wearable products. A lot of a lot of their the products out there gamify the experience because mm. in the end, yes, they're they're trying to to help you understand your sleep or your recovery, but they're they're really about selling a product. Mm. And so, yes, there is a lot of science behind a lot of the metrics, but there's also a lot of metrics that are marketing and are there to sort of keep you on the hook. Mm. And so, I guess we're fortunate. In, in the um, the paracycling team space that we've chosen a particular device which was selected because it is has been validated to be you know compared to a gold standard for sleep and, and high rate variability capturing but we don't we don't look at the data through the native platform we, mm-hmm. we bring the data into our own bespoke analysis suite and interpret it as I mentioned earlier uh, relative to what's normal for that athlete for that athlete yeah. Yeah. And so what recommendations would you have for coaches of para-athletes now that you've had that experience 
with them. Are there specific things you'd recommend to them? Uh, have as many conversations with the athlete as possible as regularly as you can because, you know, an athlete with a particular impairment type is not going to be the same as another athlete with the same impairment type. Um, the presentation of symptoms can can vary. Their tolerance to, to different stresses can vary. You just really have to try and understand, you know, that particular athlete that's in front of you and empower them to, to give you feedback. Yeah, yeah. I think it's very much a two-way street where you have to listen both on both sides. And I think, if anything, the is getting the athlete more engaged in why they're doing what they're doing and what the outcome that the coach is looking for. You know, you, at different times of the year, you're looking for different outcomes. And that that's kind of the, the coach has the perspective of the whole year and, and perhaps the whole quad as to what they're trying to achieve. And the more they can explain that to the co- to the athlete and, and work you know, as part of a team with them, I think that definitely helps in terms of the understanding of what what they're trying to do at any one point in time. Would you agree with that? Oh, for sure. That that bringing the athlete on the journey and really empowering them to own their their journey because mm. it's the athlete that's that's going to deliver and achieve what they want to achieve. I guess in Australia, the way the system is set up is that we tend to operate in interdisciplinary teams. So we've got a collective uh, experience and expertise supporting the coach. And, you know, the good teams I've worked with, worked in, have really adopted a co-design process where, yes, there's the coach is, is ultimately the leader, but each member of the team is empowered to, to bring their unique skill set to the table to design collectively what's best or what's what's going to best suit the athlete mm-hmm. for their you know their their performance aspirations. Yep. Mm. Um, do you have any recommendations for budding sports scientists and exercise physiologists? I guess sports typically again maybe this is this is too broad a statement, but a lot of the sports scientists <laughs> I know have been wannabe athletes and they haven't quite made it. Mm-hmm. So the next, the, the way to get into the elite space was to, was to be the scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it's, it's being inquisitive. And I guess I'm, I'm one of those people who, who was trying to a wannabe athlete and, and genetically I wasn't gifted enough to, to make it to the very top, but I, I found that problem solving and, and be, Taking on board and understanding the science side was was where the advantages were, were to be had. And so I guess that mindset of, of always trying to be at the forefront of what's uh, evidence-based practice and methodology is, is really exciting. And uh, I guess there's, there is, it's quite grey when you're like a sports scientist could be a lot of things. And as, and as I mentioned at the beginning, like the way I operate is, is really tailored to the teams that I'm involved in and, and the needs of their team. So you sort of have to be really adaptable. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, to be adaptable, you have to, you have to always be inquisitive and, and always be wanting to, to learn new things. And I guess that's something I've always tried to do is, is try and do a mini PhD every, every <laughs> few years 
so that I've got an adequate level of knowledge in, in certain key areas that are going to uh, be of benefit to coaches and athletes. Yeah, because no one wants to do multiple PhDs unless they can avoid it, can they? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did snigger at myself when you said you had you you were happy to do another three four years of university and not get a real job. I think doing a PhD in itself is doing a real job. <laughs> Well, Jamie, thank you so much. You've got some great insights and, and as I said, there's so many areas that we could kind of go down. We just wanted to get a, a little overview on this. Before you go, though, there's one last question and if you've listened to the podcast, you'll know exactly what it is, but what's your favourite food? Uh, pizza. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, topping, uh, what I preference? Like pretty basic, prosciutto, rocket, and a bit of a tomato sort of base mm-hmm. be my go-to. And can you put pineapple on a pizza or not? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> At one point I'll have to go back through all the podcasts and find the people who said pizza and work out what sort of ratio we have in terms of yes, <laughs> yes or no to the pineapple. <laughs> yeah, my wife is definitely a pineapple pizza advocate. And I'm not. <laughs> so, so you have different pizzas. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jamie. I really appreciate it, and for your expertise. And and yeah, we look forward to more good things coming out of the paracycling program for Australia. No, thanks, Liz. It's great to to be able to chat about parasport. I think Jamie has some great advice around how you can use extra components of your body signals and your understanding of what your normal is to help manage training load and and not just manage it but optimize it so that over time you can create the best performance out of your body that is possible. If you don't have access to a sport scientist or physiologist then I'm sure that you can go search for one in your local area. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you want to share it with your social media, that would be great. And I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Jessica Hines, who is a para thrower.